There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Rule the World, the ultimate power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life to help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host, Paul Furlong. Hello and welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. I'm your host, Paul Furlong. Just a quick reminder that my book, Rule the World, Master the Power of Storytelling to Inspire, Influence and Succeed, is now available. And get hold of your copy in all good bookshops, including Amazon and Kindle, Waterstones and WH Smith in the UK, Barnes and Noble in the US, and all good bookshops throughout the rest of the world. Anyway, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce you to today's guest. Today's guest is Professor Robert C. Bartlett, Barakis Professor of Hellenic Political Studies at Boston College. His principal area of research is classical political philosophy with particular attention to the thinkers of ancient Hellas, including, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and get all these words right, Robert. Let's see how we do here. Uh, Thucydides, is that Thucydides. Right? Thucydides. Thucydides, that's good. Plato, I know that one. Uh, Xenophon, is that right? Yep. And Aristotle, which is who we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Robert is also the author or editor of eight books, including The Idea of Enlightenment, Plato's Protagoras and Menno and Xenophon's The Shorter Socratic Writings. I did all right there, Robert, didn't I? Anyway, welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, I've given you a little bit of an introduction, staggered though it was. Uh, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and, uh, and your background? Well, you did hit the main points, I think. I'm a, a graduate of the University of Toronto, originally a Canadian by birth. Um, and my principal area of study, as you mentioned, is classical political philosophy. Um, with Susan Collins, I, I 
produced a new translation of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And most recently, and I guess most relevantly for our conversation, uh, I just published a new edition, a translation with a commentary of Aristotle's Art of Rhetoric. Wow, so that's, uh, that's pretty spot on for what we're gonna be talking about today then. So why don't we start uh, initially um, with, um, with some of Aristotle's principles of storytelling because he, he's kind of the modern master of storytelling. He was maybe one of the earliest uh, pr proponents of, of how to tell a story. He kind of dissected it and, and uh, had a look mm -hmm. at how one should approach storytelling way before uh, some of the people who do it today. So could you maybe break down how Aristotle approached storytelling and, uh, and talk us through that for us? Sure. Uh, you know, one of his central concerns is this is captured in the Greek word logos, the simplest meaning of which is simply the articulate sounds that human beings by nature make, in contrast to, say, animals, which can cry and so on, express pleasure and pain. But only human beings have logos, speech, reason, argument. Uh, it, it admits of a wide variety of, of translations. It can even be translated as definition. And there are two, I would say, main sources for Aristotle on storytelling understood as the producing of speeches or arguments. And the first uh, would be his poetics, his account of poetry. Uh, and in particular, he has in mind their tragic uh, poetry, tragic plays. Uh, but these principles that he lays out there for a story have been adopted and adapted widely. I'm told they're used by um, teachers of screenwriting, for example. And, and there are six main parts, he says, to a, to a story or to a tragedy. The first, of course, is the story or the plot. What happens? There's a beginning and a middle and an end. And in a good story, each should lead with a kind of necessity to the next. And a story can, can include famously a reversal, peripatia. There's a, there's a kind of shift, unexpected shift in the action. What happens in the, in the story or the play? A twist, you could say. And then what Aristotle calls recognition. Some piece of information, usually... Uh, and there's a kind of aha moment. So, I mean, a famous example, when Oedipus finds out who his wife is, also his mother. <laughs> this is a kind of uh, recognition of something. Um, so that's the story of the plot. Second is what he calls character. One's moral type as revealed in the choices that, I, that one makes. So, you know, a, a criminal, an inveterate criminal, this would be revealed through the choices that he or she makes. And so the, the story has to reveal or convey that sense of the character, of the characters, plural. Um, third, what he calls thought or understanding or intention. You might paraphrase that as the theme, the broader point the story is trying to make about, say, greed or ambition or war. Um, what's the thought behind it? These, these um, characters are revealing their, their, their souls, their character in a, in, a, in a plot, but what's the author trying to convey more broadly than that? Fourth, he says, diction is a, an important part of the story. And that just means basically word choice. How do the characters choose to, to express themselves in very simple, direct, blunt, crude language, perhaps? All of those things will shape very much the character of the story. And then the last two are, are probably more relevant to tragedy, or at least plays, the song making, because there would always be songs accompanying the storytelling, and the spectacle, the sight, 
that could mean the sets, the costumes, and so on. And that all of that has to form or should form a cohere, coherent whole presenting the story to the, to the audience. The other source um, for Aristotle on storytelling or speech making is of course the rhetoric. Uh, and in the third book of the rhetoric, he, he lays out the parts of a good speech. Um, most simply, he says there has to be a subject matter and a demonstration of it. And in a way, this is one of Aristotle's virtues, I would say. He can, the points can be both very simple and clear, but also with profound implications. You have your speech, the story you're telling has to be about something. And if you're not quite sure what it's about, that's a problem. So you, it has to be clear in the, in the storyteller's mind what the proposition is and the proof of it. Those are also words that Aristotle uses. So this is what I'm going to say, and here's why you should believe it or uh, accept it. Uh, he says also in that, in that section of the rhetoric that a speech should probably have four parts. The preface, you begin. And he makes the nice observation, which is true in my experience, that you've got your audience most at the beginning because they're most awake. Also, perhaps toward the end when you use the phrase, and now to conclude, and then people tend to wake up again. So there's the preface. You ease in, perhaps by introducing yourself. Then the proposition again, as I said, what I'm going to talk about, and, and then the proof or the, the, the persuasion involved. And that can include famously the narration. And he says that's particularly important in judicial speeches in a courtroom, the facts. My client was not there on the evening of July the 7th, you know, that sort of thing. In fact, he was here, and you lay it out for the audience. And then he says the epilogue is, is important. And you can um, help to make the audience more well disposed towards you or badly towards your opponent. Um, you can amplify or diminish, he says. You, you make, this is a great important moment in human history. Or, you know, what my client did was wrong, but not that, not, not so bad. Uh, you can also appeal one last time to the passions in the audience, more on that in a minute. And then finally, you sum up. So you, you put the, you drive home the point that was laid out, hopefully, in the preface. And he says, those are the four parts that a, a good speech has to have. He says, there could be more, but, but that's, the, that's the core of conveying a story to your audience, bringing them along, something like that. So that, that's... Those principles have stood now for a good number of years. Millennia, <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and we still use them. And, and you mentioned screenwriters and using the same principles. And we've had screenwriters on, on, the, um, on the podcast who've talked about this and read many books uh, about it. And, and they're still using the same principles uh, today. Um, you mentioned uh, the book... Uh, uh, rhetoric did you call it the rhetoric is that how it's yeah technically the 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 title is the art of rhetoric the art. he insists that rhetoric is in fact an art okay and um you said, times, that, you said that there are that it's an art you said there are a number of books in there the th three books within three the books. Mm -hmm. three books um so could you tell us a little bit before we get into kind of what it talks about tell us a little bit about the, the history of, of that book and, and why it was so important for him to, to write that and, and how, how it came about. We're not sure when exactly he wrote it, but, but he refers to a number of his other writings, the analytics, the politics, 
um, the poetics, in fact, he refers to. So it must have come relatively late in his career. What to make of that in turn, I don't know. But it would be hard to overstate the influence of that book in the history of rhetoric, rhetorical speech, persuasive speech. Um, it was adopted in the Roman world, Quintilian, uh, Cicero, and others. It was absorbed into the Middle Ages, the Christian, uh, Jewish, and Islamic Middle Ages. There are commentaries by Averroes and Al-Farabi on the book. Um, and really, it, it la its influence was very strong right through, say, to Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century. Hobbes was a great critic of Aristotle. He says some outrageous things about Aristotle, but he praised the rhetoric. He said, that's good. Um, and in fact, Hobbes's own psychology, uh, which is central to his political thought, is clearly based in part on a reading of the rhetoric. Um, and in the 20th century, Martin Heidegger, one of the most influential, controversial thinkers of the 20th century, praised the rhetoric very highly in his being in time. So it's it's been adopted in very ways, various ways. It's been expanded, certainly, but the core of it has remained remarkably influential, really, for millennia. So the the it's broken down into three books, as you say. Um, do the three books uh, follow a, a particular thought process? Um, what what is the what is the reason why it's broken down in the way that it's broken down? Yeah, it's there is a kind of uh, order to the thing. Uh, to simplify somewhat, the first book is devoted to explaining the three kinds of rhetoric, um, which I can just state, state briefly, briefly. The first is deliberative rhetoric in any political assembly. Should we pass this law or get rid of this law, accept this treaty or not? That's deliberative or political rhetoric. Um, epideictic rhetoric is praise or blame. So any funeral oration, that's the classic example of an epideictic, sometimes called ceremonial rhetoric, you praise and blame. Um, and then, as I've mentioned, judicial rhetoric, courtroom setting. And there it's questions of justice and injustice, guilty or innocent. Those are the three kinds of rhetoric. And so that's laid out in the first book. The second book is um, devoted largely to the three proofs or modes of persuasion. Um, and this might be the most famous part of the book. The, the third and shortest book is takes up questions of organization, which I, I've already gone through, and diction, word choice. Um, but the second and therefore central book does concern these proofs or modes of persuasion. Um, and if anybody knows anything about the rhetoric, they may have heard of these three Greek words, ethos, pathos, and logos. Someone, not I, once called these the three musketeers of rhetoric. <laughs> What do they mean? Ethos means character. The speech in order to be persuasive has to convey a sense to your audience that you have a good character. You know, so um, Anthony Fauci may say, having headed up the CDC and studied you know, epidemiology for 40 years, I. That's already a convey, conveying a certain expertise. And one hopes at least that that's moving to the audience. So that's the first proof or, as I, as I prefer to translate it, a mode of persuasion, because proof should not convey in one's mind like a mathematical proof, you know? Rhetoric is not math. Or as Aristotle puts it very simply, what is persuasive is persuasive to someone. And you can never forget the audience to whom you're speaking. And you have to gear everything to them and their existing opinions, prejudices perhaps, inclinations and so on. So knowing your audience is very important. And on that note, um, I could speak about pathos. So ethos to repeat is the conveying a sense of your good character. 
maybe expertise. Pathos is, is, means simply passion. And to be persuasive, um, you have to appeal not just to the reasoning abilities of your audience, but to their, their passions. And in that context, Aristotle takes up first and at greatest length, anger. I think not so surprisingly. Um, you know, an angry mob. You have to know how either to calm them down, justified in this case, or even incite it, which is a dangerous business. Um, but you could also, he also discusses, he mentions about 16 passions on all. He doesn't talk, take them all up at great length, uh, but fear or pity, a certain gentleness, again, anger. All of these things, and, and the most famous part of the rhetoric, I think, in the second book for Hobbes, for Heidegger and others, was his account of the human passions. He does it with his, his kind of clinician-like skill, you know, lays them out what they are, how to raise them, how to lower them. And then finally, logos, which is the word I, I began speaking about, the argument, the speech itself. And you might suppose that he would spend most time on that. And he, he certainly does spend time on it. But again, rhetoric is not logic. It's not dialectic, to use his term. It's, a, it's an offshoot of dialectic, but it's something different. And so if you have a watertight, logically sound argument, by all means, use it. But it's not likely that you will. And again, the, the, the task of rhetoric is to persuade. It isn't necessarily to teach. And that's a momentous, or potentially at least momentous, distinction. Um, so that those are the three modes of persuasion or proofs, ethos, logos, and pathos. And that really is the heart and soul of the, of the rhetoric. Um, he, he does, there are, there are a number of particular pieces of advice that he gives, but in the end, it's clear that you have to take his principles and apply them. So for example, know your audience. <clears throat> he says, you, you know, you can praise, he quotes Socrates, it's easy to praise Athenians to Athenians. You know what they like, you can say. Nobody does this better than Athens. Um, but it's up to you as the storyteller, as the speaker, to find out what those prevailing opinions are, which can be a challenge to your particular audience. And, and so he gives a kind of blueprint or, or he states the importance of that. But the connection between the principles and the application has to lie with you, the speaker. But, but, you know, his book is very helpful in, in pointing to the things, the kind of things you have to think about in telling your story. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And it seems to me that um, ethos 
Pathos and Logos need to work together. Um, you, it doesn't seem like one would work by itself. So uh, having having passion, but without character and without a logical argument doesn't seem like it's going to work very well. Can you talk to me a little bit about how they need to interact with each other in order to, to be able to put together that persuasive argument? Or, or am I wrong? Does, would one work by itself? No, I think you're quite right that they have to, the best speech will combine all three so that, so that in order to, be, to persuade your audience of something, you need every arrow in your quiver to be sure. However, he does stress that in deliberative rhetoric, so in the political setting, um, the character of the, of the speaker is particularly important because in a way you're saying, take my advice. Here's what we absolutely have to do, or in, in no circumstance, under no circumstances should we do this. And so that's particularly important, not to the neglect of the others, you're quite right, but perhaps with a greater emphasis on that. Similarly, in the case of epideictic rhetoric, if you're praising someone, then you would, you would extol the character of the person in question, right? Not so much yours, but the subject. Um, so Pericles' funeral oration, the, the dead soldiers, you know, um, that, would be, uh, that would be most important. Um, and of course, the, the logos, the, the, the argument qua argument, those, um, the, the, what he calls the topics, the kind of subject headings from which you can gather arguments, um, that does apply to every and every, any kind of rhetoric. Um, so, for example, the argument that if something very unlikely has happened, well, then it's all the more likely that the likely happened. You know, and he has a long list of these, over twenty so-called topics, where you could go to look for a kind of argument to make. Um, so, uh, there are certain emphases uh, in in particular kinds of rhetoric, but you're right uh, that that in a, in the best circumstance, all three kinds of proofs or modes of persuasion will work together. And you mentioned as well, um, kind of particularly uh, within pathos, there's a certain, uh, and you said art before, the, the mm -hmm. art. Um, I imagine there's also a skill, particularly within within each of them. Maybe maybe ethos when you when you've had those years of experience, that kind of just comes naturally. If you've been doing something like uh, Fauci, he's been doing something for forty years. That kind of that's kind of naturally occurring, isn't it? Once you've built that experience, but. Pathos right. and logos, that takes skill. That takes uh, you, something that you can learn, I imagine, isn't it? That, that yes. That skill. yes. So um, how do you learn pathos? What, what does he say about um, what are the things that you can do to, to build yeah. your, your ability in pathos? And what can you do to learn your ability in, in logos? Well, a couple of things. First, <clears throat> you, I think he would say you need to read my account of what these passions are what tends to, to foment them, what tends to calm them down, and then take those principles. So anger is often um, roused in response to a perceived injustice, either against you or someone in your circle. And so if you can show that in fact, such an injustice was done or that it wasn't done, depending on your point of view or your purpose, that will tend either to increase or to decrease the anger. So you have to understand the, the what the passions are. And it's, you, your question points to something striking about this book. It's partly theoretical, what is anger? But it's also partly practical. 
it isn't exactly a, a handbook for today's you know speaker that kind of thing but there are there are instances of, of of practical advice and so on so he leads you up to a certain point where then it, he hands the baton to you to apply what it is that he's said now the second thing I, I wanted to mention in regard to this too is the he does speak about the art of delivery but not a great deal that was developed later in the tradition um, tricks and things how to develop your memory this was a great theme not in Aristotle but in later thinkers you know the memory palace thing and that sort of thing um, it's practice and practice <laughs> you have on the basis of his principles so for example do you have a preface or is your preface accomplishing what I said it should accomplish the epilogue you know do you have one does it does it circle back to the main point hammering it home if you began by establishing your credentials do you remind the audience of that so so there are kind of practical tricks in that way and they're not tricks but uh practical advice but in the end yes i think it does come down to to practice and a certain perhaps natural gift that can be developed or not with practice so i wonder if you could maybe give us some examples of where rhetoric has been used to good effect or perhaps to terrible effect um perhaps uh, some some modern examples or, or even some examples that that would be famous and, and well known to, to the listeners right well by day i'm a political science professor so i'll give some political examples i would point in the first place to those who must be ranked among the the greatest orators in the 20th century um martin luther king John F. Kennedy, and I would say towering above them all, and not just because you're a Brit, uh, Winston Churchill. All three speakers used rhetorical devices, anaphora, isocolon, and so on. And you could analyze their speeches in that way. But there is a kind of directness, clarity, even a sort of simplicity that is not in the thought, but in the expression of the thought, that is very powerful. Martin Luther King, of course, learned to speak in the pulpit, and so his many of his speeches have an overtly poetical character, and obviously he availed himself of, of scripture. Um, that's much less true, of course, of Kennedy and Churchill. But both spoke at times of gravity, national and international crises, the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course, the Second World War, and they brought in their speech a kind of seriousness or gravity that didn't require great ornamentation. In fact, I think ornamentation would have detracted from the effect. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight. Boom, boom, boom. The, the repetition of that um, in the case of, of Churchill and to some extent also uh, Kennedy. We will bear every prize, uh, burden and so on. Um, so those would be huge figures, I think, in contemporary rhetoric. Um, the question of demagoguery has come up lately in American politics and the, the very strong reactions to Donald Trump, both pro and con. And there you see masterful use of very simple rhetoric. Um, in saying it's masterful, I am not necessarily praising it, but that it qua rhetoric, it was, it was effective, um, but it's infinitely simpler. Um, it makes Kennedy and, and Churchill look like Shakespeare by comparison. <laughs> um, 
so those I think would be the, the the great figures. And if anyone wants to study rhetoric, I would uh, I would begin with some of the great modern political speeches, political speeches. And um, do you think when when I think when people say the word rhetoric, they obviously they think of those people. Right. I think initially they just think of people who talk well. And it's kind of a language that they use, and you, and you mentioned kind of high school and, and those kind of devices. Right. right. Would you say? Uh, I think I think your answer is going to be yes. But would you say that they all, including Trump, tapped into kind of the ethos and the pathos and the logos? Um, and and where would you say that that came into into those kind of uh, into those kind of speeches? Especially, I would say, in the case of Trump, um, pathos and even ethos, I'm an outsider, I'm gonna drain the swamp. I'm not like those guys. I won't take any salary and I can't be bought. And for the, the, the use of pathos, I think it's, it's particularly clear in the case of Trump. Um, if you've seen footages of his rallies, um, almost sing-songy, you know, repetitions, lock her up, lock her up, <laughs> which were kind of, you know, fun. You could, you could get a, sing along, so to speak. Um, appealing to a certain kind of patriotism, perhaps nationalism, um, rousing those passions, which is why he was so controversial among those who, who disliked him, that he aroused passions on both sides, you could say. Um, and that's a troubling thing. It, it, it your, your question reminds me that Aristotle begins the art of rhetoric by acknowledging in a way rhetoric is a mixed bag. It's a dangerous thing. I mean, the way I tend to put it is that it's a loaded gun and loaded guns can be used for good and they can be used for ill because they are not simply exercises in logic. And when you begin to appeal to people's passions, that's, that's a risky business. And he knows that, he acknowledges that, he exhorts his readers to use these things for the, to defend what's true and what's just. But he, he certainly knows, and this was Socrates' point, who, who's very critical of rhetoric, um, that it can be misused. So you could criticize Aristotle, I suppose, by, by in a way, perf giving to the, to the world a more precise gun with a better, better aim, you know? But I could defend him on a couple of grounds. I think, first of all, there'll be rhetoric with or without Aristotle. Since people have gathered together in groups, we've tried to persuade each other, tell each other stories. And so that's going to go on whether or not Aristotle wrote. And second, he wants to try to understand the thing as precisely as possible and to encourage his students to use it well, responsibly. But there is a certain risk involved, there's no question. I think one of the, uh, I'll come back to your, your points about Socrates in, in a second, if I may, but one of the points you made earlier about knowing your audience, I think uh, mm. certainly knew his audience as well, didn't he? Yes. Um, as well did Churchill and, and Martin Luther King, but Tr Trump has really known his audience from day one in order yeah. to be able to, to raise those passions and, and use the ethos. In a way, let it be said that I think none, other of, the, none of the other candidates for president did, that he saw that there was a, a swath of the American population that had been ignored, and in some cases, not just ignored, but um, made the object of contempt. And he saw that, uh, and it had, for a time at least, a kind of explosive effect. 
So you mentioned there that, that Socrates criticised uh, the, the art of rhetoric, um, and for, for the reason that it was uh, it, it gave that kind of more precise uh, kind of gun and uh, people to be able to misuse it. Was was that his only criticism of it, or, or did he have other criticisms of it as well? It was the principal criticism that it's to use Socrates' formulation. This is from Plato's Gorgias, that it's persuasion without teaching. And so what you say, in fact, it's truth or falsity is in a way irrelevant. The question is, will you get someone to believe it? And so Socrates was, was very critical of it, principally on that ground. Now that said, Plato, the complication is that Plato himself was a master of rhetoric. So there could be a responsible use of rhetoric. For example, the defense of the philosophic life and Socrates. Um, Socrates' judicial rhetoric was kind of a disaster. If you've read Plato's Apology, he managed to get himself convicted on all counts. <laughs> so he needed a better judicial rhetoric. Uh, and Plato, in a way, uh, supplied that. He transformed this somewhat sketchy figure into a world historical hero. That's impressive. So there's, this, there's a real criticism of rhetoric, together with, I think, an acknowledgement of its necessity in Plato and Socrates. That's, that's brilliant. And, and Robert, I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to go through all that with us today. I know that, that this is really complicated, particularly because it's translated and, and you're talking that's to, right. to somebody like me who hasn't the, the foggiest clue about uh, an awful lot of this. So uh, being able to put that into, into plain English, um, I really appreciate you you being uh, so clear with, with all of that. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Just a couple of very quick fire questions that asked all our guests, if that would be okay. Um, sure. So who, other than Aristotle, perhaps, um, do you think of when you hear the word story and why do you think of that individual? Well, maybe given my, my tastes and, and, and uh, scholarship, I immediately think of two classical figures. Aesop on the one hand with his fables, uh, whom, by the way, Aristotle quotes in, in his rhetoric that the use of fables can be very effective, stories in that sense. Uh, and of course, Homer and Hesiod, the great myths. One difference between a fable and a myth is that the fable, everyone who hears the fable knows it isn't true. The fox never really talked to the lion. Even children know that, but it's charming. Whereas in, a, in the case of a myth, it's not clear to all everyone that it isn't true, that some people take the myths quite literally. And they are, they, these are both, both famous and very effective ways to convey a story um, through fable and through myth. So those are the first two that leap to mind anyway. Brilliant. And uh, do you think you might be able to recommend any, any good books or I don't know, podcasts or online resources about story time that might help us in our, uh, in our passions or in our abilities to improve that's a, that's a good question. Well, forgive me, but I will recommend first my recent edition of The Art of Rhetoric by Aristotle, available from the University of Chicago Press. Also his poetics, which is very short. And my other recommendation may seem out of left field, maybe because it is out of left field. Um, I happen to love the novels of P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, and they, he is a masterful storyteller. They may not be to everyone's tastes, but they're certainly to mine. They're delightful to read. He was a master of the English language. Um, and if you read them analytically, you will see how to put a story together, I think. 
So those would be my my recommendations. That's uh, they're great answers, and of course we will uh, we'll seek out your book and uh, and have a, have a good read of it. And and finally, Robert, where can we find out more about you? Where can we find you online um, to uh, to do some more research into you? I do maintain an author's page on Amazon.com. And if anyone wants to go to Boston College's website, bc.edu, I also have a you know biographical page there. Brilliant. Well, once again, Robert, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom with us. It's been a, an absolute pleasure talking to you and I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Thank you for having me. Just a quick reminder that my book, Rule the World, Master the Power of Storytelling to Inspire, Influence and Succeed, is now available. You can get hold of your copy in all good bookshops, including Amazon and Kindle, Waterstones and WH Smith in the UK, Barnes and Noble in the US, and all good bookshops throughout the rest of the world. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Rule the World. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic, as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you, and see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.